0: Hi and welcome to Greetings from Brussels, episode 15. My name is Morgan Taylor and I'm very excited to be your new host for the Global Tech Fund podcast. And with that, I'm joined by Anna and Niels from my EU team. Hi, Anna. Hello. And hi, Niels. Hey, everyone. So, with the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, the use of digital solutions to improve access to healthcare in Europe has increased significantly. However, app makers developing m health products and services are still facing many challenges. And today we're talking about some of these challenges with Vincent Koenen, CEO and founder of the Belgian M Health app and member company Endeman 7, and Anna, our EU m Health Policy Expert. But first, a bit of tech history and the top tech headlines in Europe. For tech history, we're going to Germany to mark the 30th anniversary of the release of the SIM card, an essential component to our beloved smartphones. The first SIM card was developed in 1991 by smart card maker Gisaka Devrion in Munich, Germany. Although it's better known for its um, acronym SIM, um, SIM stands for Subscriber Identification Module. Since its original debut in 1991, technology um, has changed and so has the SIM. And there has been a micro SIM, which was part of the iPhone 4 in 2010, as well as a nano SIM, which has been used since uh, its uh, debut in the iPhone 5 in 2012. And today SIM cards are just everywhere with the emergence of the internet of things, They have been called on to securely connect mobile phones, wireless hotspots, credit cards and countless of other devices around the world. SIM cards are evolving yet again with the new embedded SIM, the eSIM, card, to meet the new um, IoT demands of the future. And as the name suggests, eSIM cards are integrated permanently into a device. Today, SIM cards allow over seven billion devices globally to connect to serial networks, and the rest is tech history. And now, it's time for Brussels Bites. Anna, Niels, what are the latest top tech headlines from inside the Brussels bubble?
1: Apple recently announced the launch of two new tools designed to protect children's privacy. The first tool uses on-device machine learning to identify and blur sexually explicit images received by children in iMessage and can notify a parent if a child age 12 or younger decides to view or send such an image. The second tool is designed to detect and report known child sexual abuse material to law enforcement by scanning users' images if they choose to upload them to the iCloud. Digital privacy groups have expressed concern that such measures would introduce a backdoor into Apple's software and could lead to the banning of content that goes beyond child sexual abuse material, such as political dissent materials by authoritarian governments. In response, Apple has stated that user privacy is safeguarded through multiple layers of encryption, fashioned in a way that requires several steps before it ever makes it into the hands of Apple's final manual review. You can find more about this story in the show notes.
2: And speaking of children's privacy, the Dutch Data Protection Authority, the Autoriteit Persoonsgegevens, recently issued fines to social media platform TikTok totaling 750,000 euros for violating the privacy of the younger Dutch users. What it boils down to is that TikTok displayed their privacy statement to their Dutch users in English. By offering the privacy statement By not offering the privacy statement in Dutch, TikTok failed to provide an adequate explanation of how the app collects, processes and uses personal data, which is considered an infringement of privacy legislation. Before this investigation, TikTok did not have any offices in the EU, therefore any European Data Protection Authority could have launched an investigation. This led to the Dutch taking up the case. However, as the the investigation has gone on, Tiktok has, uh, has established operations in Ireland and it will now be up to the Irish DPA to finish the investigation and issue a final ruling on the other possible violations of privacy investigated by the DPA.
1: Some news in tech diplomacy you may have missed is that the European Union External Action Service or EEAS is planning to set up a representation in San Francisco. The goal is to pay more attention to the geopolitical consequences of new technologies and to take a close look at the growing power of internet companies. The initiative is also directed at foreign powers to understand how digital technologies can be used as a tool for social surveillance and repression by authoritarian regimes, and to join forces with the U.S. in setting the standards for these future technologies. As the EEAS stated, the choice of the global model for technology and internet regulation will determine which countries or regions will fill future leadership roles. We'll of course follow the story and inform you about future developments.
2: Recently, we hosted our French edition of the Appmakers Tour. We discussed things from security to competition in today's app economy, as well as how Europe, new European rules could affect app makers. And the broader technology ecosystem. Our next stop is in Italy on the 22nd of September. We'll be joined by policymakers and app developers to continue our discussion about the ongoing platform regulation efforts in the EU. You can sign up directly via the link in the show notes and check out the recordings and recaps of all our previous events on the AppMakers Tour website.
0: And that's all for Brussels Byte. Earlier this year, we had the pleasure to welcome mHealth expert Brigitte Morion from the European Commission on episode 12 of the podcast to talk about the Commission's work when it comes to boosting the uptake of digital health technologies. So today we are excited to bring you the perspective of Vincent Kühnen, founder of member company Endoment7, for those who don't know, Enderman7 is a Belgium e health platform that aims to empower patients by giving them control over the health data, increase the speed and contribute data to medical research, and facilitate remote passion, uh, patient monitoring for medical professionals. When we sat down with Vincent, uh, we discussed how the use of digital solutions are improving access to healthcare in Europe throughout the COVID 19 pandemic. The challenges that mHealth app developers face as the pandemic continues, and most importantly, how developers can act as a community to overcome those challenges. But before we get to that, we're going to hear from our mHealth policy expert, Anna Bosch, to provide us with some context and to fill our listeners in on what we've been doing as an organization when it comes to mHealth. So Anna, maybe you can start by defining what is mHealth? Yeah, sure. Um, So in
1: short, all digital health solutions that use mobile technologies can be considered mHealth. And this definition is obviously quite broad, and it can include all kinds of digital health tools, such as mobile medical apps, wireless uh, wireless health products, and wearables like, like a smartwatch or, um, or like a remote patient monitoring tool, um, mobile medical devices, software as a medical device device, cloud-based portals like Andaman 7 and dashboards, um, and many other things that I can't all list right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, these tools have obviously become particularly important because we couldn't leave our houses or meet people or doctors, um, and amongst other things, they. These tools have assisted in tracing COVID-19 cases, staying in touch with your um, with your doctor, um, improving your mental health or monitoring chronic diseases.
0: And you wrote a blog recently, a checkup on mhealth health policies in the EU. We've linked the, that blog in the show notes for those who are interested. It's a great resource uh, summarizing what's in the pipeline in the EU in terms of mHealth policies. Um, We won't talk about the concrete initiatives today but I'm interested in going over some of the challenges that we have identified for those SMEs that are building mHealth solutions in Europe.
1: Yeah of course, Um, so given how broad mHealth is, um, today developers really face just as many challenges as opportunities in this field. And I I would say the first and probably the biggest challenge is, especially in the EU, that health policies are made and implemented at the national level. So the the European Union does not have the competency in deciding what member states should or should not do in terms of health policies, even though the EU is increasingly active in this area. particularly when health policies touch upon the single market. And especially during COVID-19, where the EU has led, for example, vaccination and tracing efforts, this will likely accelerate the change that the EU becomes more active in health policy. And so we are likely to see the EU take a bigger role in that. And that means creating a pan-European approach to healthcare, And that presents a huge challenge. And likely could lead to further diverging approaches to healthcare governance across the EU member states. And that is um, a huge disadvantage for for the companies offering mHealth solutions in the EU because there is really no single market for digital health products or services. And as we know, mHealth apps aren't inherently constrained by borders, but the patchwork of health laws across the EU often does hold them back. And and the commission is luckily taking a first step to address this issue by working towards a common European health data space. And we did talk quite a bit about that with um, Brigitte Morleon. So if you want to learn more, um, you should definitely go back and listen to that episode that we talked about this.
0: Yes, and we've. I asked Vincent of Enderman7 about whether the lack of harmonization of health laws in the EU presents a roadblock for the growth of the sector. And here's what he had to say.
3: It's a huge roadblock and on several elements, right? Uh, One element is is the technical uh, level already uh, uh, using standards. So the US has imposed to all of their hospitals and doctors to use software that has a fire API, right? This has revol- revolutionized the, the healthcare sector in 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 the in the U.S. And we see great innovations that we're trying to, to jump on and, and use, right? So that's this is uh, this is where Europe is 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 taking a huge delay compared to the U.S. For the last two, three, four years, it's slow. It's 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 getting seriously behind, unfortunately. Uh, why? Because Europe is not enforcing hospitals or, or healthcare practitioners to use uh, um, open uh, software uh, or software with an open API, I should say, right? When we talk to Europe, they say it's a national competency. And so if it's left for to each country to decide if they want to do it or not, it's going to take many years, right? If you look at the MedMay project in, in Netherlands, this is a right step in the right direction. So that's good. They're doing similarly, more or less what, they, what the what US has done. So that's good. But that's one country out of, of many in Europe. And what they're deciding in the Netherlands will not be consistent with whatever comes from the other countries. So even if there is a national uh, decision to move on, there's still going to be many, many problems to have some kind of harmonized approach in Europe. That's only for the the um, technical aspect and the, the, the standards being used, right? Because in Europe, in addition to that, we have the languages problem, right? Which makes it more difficult, right? When you go to your doctor, if you're French speaking, you speak French and everything in your health record is in French, possibly code it. If there is codification, then we can move it to other languages. But this is a, a problem that the US don't, don't have and that we do have in addition of the other ones, right? So. Even if Europe was moving moving faster than the U.S. regarding fire adoption and and the mandatory use of, of fire APIs, for example, we would still have other problems to to overcome to to get to a a situation where where we can really innovate and there is some kind of uh, a flow of information flow with privacy and security, of course, right? These uh, are non-negotiable, as we were saying earlier. So yes, indeed, I believe we have huge problems at various levels, technical, regulatory, uh, languages, and the uh, non-capability or the uh, impediments that, that uh, f- um, forbids the European Union to impose on everybody to use uh, open standards. So that's, these are huge problems.
1: Yeah, that is exactly right and what he's saying there touches on many of the points that we advocate for as well. Um, and I would also like to say um, or point out that another big challenge for mHealth developers is the safe processing of sensitive health information. So. Trust and privacy are essential for both developers and users in any circumstance, but especially in mHealth applications because they use sensitive health data. And as more and more data is exchanged online, privacy has become a crucial issue here. So the creation of of a European health data space could resolve some of those current issues and increase trust and privacy for both developers and users.
0: Yes, and that's interesting. Um, The Enderman uh, Enderman 7 platform is particularly focused on privacy and security. And to our member Vincent, uh, privacy is not negotiable. So we asked him what that meant exactly and what Enderman um, does uh, to tackle this.
3: What patients really want is to be in control, right? They want to be able to decide if they share their data or not. Some patients really don't, don't, don't mind sharing their health data so or for giving purposes and with specific uh, uh, partners, right? In that case, they agree to uh, lose uh, their privacy, but it's for a good reasons and they know about it. They've given their agreement before, right? And they know who is using, who is using the data. It's not gonna be uh, forwarded to others. And they can stop uh, at any time uh, their consent when if they want. So if they have all of these, uh, I think that there's been studies saying that eighty five percent of patients agree to share uh, some or all of their data given these uh, these conditions. I would say they don't like to be abused by the, uh, in, in a word, right. So that's that's the real. Uh, a deep sentiment of of patients, uh, I believe, right? Uh, That's also my sentiment as a patient myself. So it's it's difficult to do in practice. And then in addition to privacy, then there is security of data, right? Because hackers uh, are very much interested in collecting uh, health data and trying to steal health data because it has a lot of value, right? So security is related, but it's a different issue. And So the approach that we've taken at Andaman7 is I think quite unusual. I don't think you will find it uh, anywhere else for the moment. It's also because of our long uh, experience with health data. Uh, It's because we are patients and also because we're based in Europe. So GDPR has influenced us a lot. So what we decided is uh, to put all of the health data on the smartphone of patients. Of course, they can make backup if they want, right? But there is no data in the cloud. So security-wise, this is much better because it's completely distributed. There is no central place where the hacker could uh, try to uh, break in and find hundreds of thousands of health records. It just does not exist in the Andaman 7 system, right? Everything they could do is hack one phone and get one uh, one health record or maybe the health record of, of the family which is no big deal right it's not very interesting for a for a hacker to, to do to do that so by by design and that's why we say security by design uh, by design the andaman seven way of managing and storing data is 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 much harder for, for, for hacking for hackers right we say security by design but and we also say privacy by default which means that if you enter data uh, in your health record, in your Enderman 7 PHR, personalized record, no data is ever shared by default. Everything stays on your phone. You have to take a specific action to share data with your spouse, your doctor, and so on. And you could also be invited to contribute to, for example, a clinical trial, but then you're invited and then you have to consent to be part of the, the trial. And then you have a very clear... Uh, specification of what data will be shared, who it will be shared with and uh, for what purposes and that all you can also retract your consent. So this this, this is a combination of technical uh, elements and also architectural uh, choices and also based on our philosophical approach or ethical approach of, of the, the health data field that, that we can provide those, those in, in such a way.
0: Looking to the future, we also wanted to get Vincent's thoughts on what trends he sees emerging in a post-COVID world in terms of mHealth in the years to come.
3: Yeah, well, there's many things moving and they're moving in the right direction, right? So I don't want to be too negative. It's just that it's... Going too slow in, in in Europe, much much too slow, right? So what I see in the future is a hopefully a better interoperability of data. That's that's a prerequisite to almost everything else, right? Uh, what Europe has and that others don't have, it's very clear regulations on privacy, which I believe are quite good. Uh, so GDPR is is very good on that, and uh, we see with surprise that other countries are moving in that direction, right? The new California Privacy Act is not GDPR, but it's in the direction of GDPR. So it's good. And there's similar uh, new acts in um, in Eastern states of of the US, right? Washington and and New York and and so on. And there's also the new Brazil uh, Privacy Act, which is also going in that direction. So there, Europe is leading for, for the regulation. So that's very good. Now, what we need to do is, to fix the interoperability problems and fix it fast. So that will allow the, the flow of data. And with that, we will be able to build on top of that AI techniques or, or machine learning techniques or new new technologies uh, that will uh, able, uh, enable us to uh, better uh, use the data. Uh, COVID has forced everybody to accept teleconsultation, right? And it, it's it's being said by some that up to 70, 70 percent, seven zero of consultations can be done online without touching the patients, right? Only 30% need that. And out of those 70%, or almost 40% can be automated by software because these are simple cases, right? So these are very interesting numbers that that show that there is a possibility to uh, reduce costs significantly. And that's 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 there is no way outside of this, right? The cost of healthcare is very high everywhere too high right and if we're growing older and there's a more like for example half of of cancer patients today are chronic patients because their cancer has been cured but they have to be uh, in a in a chronic patients because they have to be controlled regularly right I go every three months for a blood test uh, for the last 13 years right I've been diagnosed 13 years ago I take that pill, it's for forever, for my whole life, but I still go every three months for a blood test and my son goes every year for a full uh, test, right? So we becoming chronic patients. So these will uh, augment the, the cost of healthcare. So we have to find ways to reduce what we can, right? So those technologies can significantly reduce the costs. And that's that's, uh, that's a combination if you want, if you ask me about the future, it's, it's uh, more tools to, uh, uh, go faster uh, on finding new treatments, uh, give better care uh, in a simpler way without the patient driving to his doctor. So reducing costs and improving the capabilities. And there's lots of potential, right? It's, it's the sector that gets the most uh, funding today, it seems.
0: Well, that's a nice note to end on. We can only agree that mHealth is a big opportunity, not only it is an area of economic growth, but it also brings life-saving care to Europeans and patients around the world. We have lots of resources on our websites relating to mHealth and don't hesitate to contact us if you have any questions or need any information on any of these issues we've talked about today. With that, a big thank you to Vincent for sharing his experience and thoughts about M-Health in Europe. If interested, you can read more about his company in our show notes. And thank you to you, Anna, for your insights. You're welcome. And now it's time for random identifiers. I'm going to start with you, Anna. You're up first.
1: Yeah, okay. Um, I think we've talked about COVID-19 a little bit in this episode, so I'm going to stick with the theme. And uh, my random identifier is that my gym that I go to has finally reopened and it has been a very big life improvement because it means I don't have to work out in my tiny bedroom or outside, which is very difficult because it is very hot here. Um, And yeah, it has just really, really made me feel better these past, like, 2 weeks since it's opened. <laughs> yeah, I
0: can imagine it's a life-changing uh, experience. My yeah. gym reopened a few months ago and uh I started feeling alive again. Right? Yeah, it is. I
1: I enjoyed that they had the option to work out outdoors, so they would teach classes outside, which was nice during the spring and the fall, but over the summer it really got challenging to do anything outside and yeah, now they're open. There's air conditioning. There's all the props that I need, there's so much space that I don't have in my home,
3: <laughs> so
0: it's, it's good. And the satisfaction to know you, yeah. To get the motivation. I feel like when you go to a gym, I need to have the, the, the process of yes, going there, a, and once you're there, yeah. you, you don't have a choice, <laughs> basically. Yeah. And I need the instructor
1: to like tell me what to do.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, Niels, what's your random identifier?
2: Well, I'm not really sticking to the theme, because my um, theme, my uh, random uh, random identifier is about dragons. Well, <laughs> not really <laughs> dragons, but according to, according to <laughs> the researcher, according to the researcher, it's like the closest thing we've ever seen to a real-life dragon. So I have to put this in there. So it's it's basically a creature that lived a uh, hundred and five million years ago in Australia and they found a part of the skull but it basically comes down to a massive (laughs) pterodactyl and uh, the wingspan of it is like 7 meters for the US listeners that's 30 foot so this thing is massive Um, and I'm just I'm just intrigued basically
0: yeah and when when did they find
2: that? just this week I think
0: oh wow a new thing to put in the books, yeah. All right. Or at
2: least th- this week they, they reported on it. Uh, they, they must have found it like, earlier, but I saw it in the, in the news this week.
0: Well, the other didn't know you were interested mm-hmm. in yeah, dinosaurs. I'm so interested <laughs> in dinosaurs. Well,
2: I'm <laughs> even more interested in dragons than in dinosaurs, but...
0: <laughs> dragons, dinosaurs, same thing. All right, then um, my random identifier. Well, it's 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 kind of linked to, 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 to Anna's one. Like when I was working out at the gym, I I was watching the Olympics uh, because I was going <laughs> at lunchtime, and lunchtime it was uh, the right time to watch stuff in the in in Japan. So, um, and apparently the Belgian team broke the record. Or, or had the highest number of medals (laughs) since the since the paris olympic games in 1924 and they got eight medals (laughs) so that's a huge achievement (laughs) compared to the netherlands which is like more or less the same population that got i think 36 medals so yeah (laughs) i don't know what to think of that but um yeah
2: (laughs) yeah the the dutch got 36 indeed of which um i think it was like 10 or something that were golden medals and in total we were 7th place which is I- insanely mm. high if you ask me for the number of um, people that the Netherlands have
1: Yeah, uh, I don't even know how many medals Germany got because they like, didn't do super well I think <laughs> I think I you think were just so. below
2: us like number 8 yeah. or 9
1: uh, For yeah. the for the amount of people they have they should be doing better but that's just me <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think the the EU ambassador tweeted at some point that they should have a the EU team, like the EU won the most medals and got yeah, backlashing. The, the EU, EU is not a country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also don't support that
1: take. <laughs> People like yeah. to claim the EU when it benefits them and reject it when it
0: doesn't. So I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, and then it is there. <laughs> so when your national pride comes back in. <laughs>
2: Yeah, uh, we can always adopt uh, a solution like uh, like the Russians by not applying as Russia, but as the mm. Russian Olympic Committee. we just but that's do like the European Olympic choice, Committee.
1: Right, that's not their choice. It's because of the the they we're using doping, right? The I <laughs> what's yeah, of called? course. The, the IOC makes them do that. It's
0: not Russia's yeah. choice.
1: <laughs> <So> yeah, <laughs> but I, I mean, <laughs>
2: they're not a country, so maybe there's yeah. an option there.
0: Nah. Yeah, well, let's hope that the EU doesn't have to it's not right. To, <laughs> <laughs> that is to a run mandatory. on the independent banner. <laughs> so well, we've reached the end of greetings from Brussels, episode 15 of our global Tech Swamp um, podcast. And if you're interested in learning more, um, head over to our website at actonline.org um, slash Tech Swamp, where you'll find our show notes.
1: And we now have transcripts available. You can find them at the top of our show notes, as well as on Podscribe.com. Just search for TechSwamp.
2: You can subscribe to TechSwamp on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher to get the latest episodes first. And don't forget to read and review.
0: Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Bye.
2: Bye.